0: This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists.
1: Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav
0: And I'm Adrielle Saporta.
1: And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we'll be speaking with Louis Follock, co-founder and CTO at immuni immuni was founded in 2018. And to take the language straight from them, they are comprehensively mapping the immune system with single-cell biology and AI to power new therapeutic discoveries, accelerate drug development, and improve patient outcomes. This past October, they raised a $215 million Series B.
0: In our conversation with Lewis today, we'll talk a bit about the business side and how funding works for biotech companies compared to more traditional tech companies. But let's start with the science. So Pranav, you mentioned some buzzwords in there like therapeutic discoveries and single cell biology. And
1: I'd love to learn more about those two things. That's right. So let's start by talking about therapeutic discoveries and then talk about how single cell biology plays in. Sounds like a plan. All right. So immunotherapy, we'll start there is a treatment or set of treatments that helps your immune system fight disease. There's currently work trying to use immunotherapy to combat all sorts of diseases, like immune disorders, fibrosis, but its most important use has been for treating cancer, where it's had a lot of success and tremendous influence. So we're gonna talk about that for right now.
0: Can we start by going into some detail on how this immunotherapy treatment works? Yeah.
1: So the basic idea is to use your own immune system to fight cancer. I think it'll be best to give a few examples of the most common approaches. So one, we have immune checkpoint inhibitors. The immune system has what are called checkpoints, which prevent an immune response from becoming too strong and destroying the healthy cells in the body.
0: And I'm guessing that certain cancers can also take advantage of this checkpoint mechanism
1: to stop the immune system from attacking it exactly so that's where the inhibitor comes in the goal of these is to turn off the checkpoint mechanism so that the immune system attacks cancer cells instead and how does that mechanism work so certain proteins on the surface of immune cells bind with proteins that are on the surface of tumor cells when this happens they release an off signal that prevents other immune cells from attacking the tumor hmm
0: And if we stop that binding from happening, can we stop the release of that off signal?
1: Exactly. So these inhibitors will block those checkpoint proteins either on the immune cell or the cancer cell.
0: So this actually reminds me a bit of our pre-interview conversation with Nan Lee, when we talked about Humira. So in that case, the goal was to inhibit the action of a specific protein that caused inflammation,
1: right? Exactly. So this is a general pattern in drug development where we identify a protein that is part of a disease mechanism in some way, and then figure out a way to block it. To recall some terminology from that episode, it's a type of a target-based approach.
0: And in this case, the targets are those receptor proteins. How broadly are immune checkpoint
1: inhibitors currently used? Uh, Well, The drug Keytruda alone, which is the most popular one produced by Merck, brought in $14.4 billion in sales in 2020. Uh, Right now, it's only second to Humira. So that's immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, Remember, we were talking about a few examples of the most common approaches uh, to use your immune system to fight cancer. Another important example is going to be T-cell transfer therapy. So A T cell is a kind of white blood cell that is specialized to fight specific foreign bodies. What's
0: the transfer part? Where are we transferring from? Uh,
1: Traditionally, the patient themselves. So T cells are collected from the patient and then those cells that are most effective at combating the tumor are selected and possibly modified. Then they're grown in large batches in the lab and put back in into the body. I remember hearing about CAR T-cell
0: therapy, and this will come up in our conversation with Lewis. How does that relate?
1: Great question. So CAR T-cell therapy is the most famous example of this, where the T-cells are modified in the lab to grow a specific kind of receptor called a chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR, After the T cells are transferred back into the body, the new receptor will then bind to a protein on the cancer cell. This improves their ability to attack those cancer cells.
0: Are CAR T cell therapies as widely used
1: as immune checkpoint inhibitors? No, but there's been a lot of success. So Since 2017, six therapies have been approved by the FDA to treat blood cancers, And there's a lot of hope and promise that this approach will successfully be applied to other cancers as well.
0: Hmm. Okay. So now let's pivot a bit to some of the challenges that these drugs
1: face. Yeah. So curing cancer is hard. So there are a lot of challenges, but one of the biggest and most relevant to our conversation today is tumor heterogeneity.
0: I think I can guess what tumor heterogeneity is. Is it The differences between tumors that appear in different patients?
1: Yes, but also different tumors within the same patient that will also have differences. And even within tumor, there'll be variation in the tumor cells. These variations can have a big impact on whether immunotherapies are going to be effective or not, but the reasons why are generally not well understood. The goal is to understand how different tumor subtypes are going to respond to different drugs so that we can better predict and target treatment. Awesome.
0: Okay. And then that brings us back to single cell biology
1: that you mentioned a few minutes back. How does that play in? So let's just think about the case of cell variation within a single tumor. So if we bulk sequence the tumor and its environment as a whole, we'll get the information that is present somewhere in that whole. We'll miss all the variations between individual cells, which could be very helpful. This is what single cell sequencing gives us. Lewis has some good analogies to compare these, so we'll go into those more when we have our conversation with him.
0: For now, can you provide an example of how this single cell
1: sequence information can be used? Yes, and there are a number of important research works from the last few years that use single cell RNA sequencing to find the mechanisms that drive resistance to immunotherapy, which is why immunotherapy doesn't work. In one study coming out of the Broad Institute, Dana-Farber and some other collaborators, um, a group found that malignant cells that were resistant to therapy were more likely to express certain genes in a specific way. They produced an excess of a certain kind of protein, which interfered with the T-cell's ability to recognize tumor cells.
0: Hmm. And so now that we've identified this troublesome protein displayed in these therapy-resistant cells, the goal will be to block it?
1: Yes. And in this study, they showed that this might work in a mass model.
0: Okay. So then just to summarize, the key here was that the single-cell sequencing allowed the authors to find a key difference between cancer cells that were resistant and receptive to therapy. Exactly. Awesome, okay. This was really, really helpful to get a bit into the weeds on the pharma side. Can we zoom back out again to understand how immuni and
1: machine learning play in? Well, that's going to be most of our conversation today. The vision is to create a map of genes, proteins, cell interactions across a number of diseases And this will do a much better job of helping us answer why and how certain treatments work than investigating individual mechanisms separately.
0: And even in the pretty simple example that we just talked about, I see how targeting a single mechanism at a time can quickly become pretty unwieldy. So I get the desire
1: to scale up faster. Yes. I'm really excited for Lewis to elaborate and talk more about Immunai's journey so far towards this goal. Lewis, welcome to the AI Health Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start by asking you about the founding story of this company.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, we started a company three and a half years ago. I started with my
1: co-founder, Noam Solomon,
2: who was in MIT at the time, and uh, we were friends uh, before starting the company. I'll say that first, our founding story is an unusual one for a biotech company in the sense that uh, neither one of us comes from uh, biotech or neither one of us has uh, degrees in in biology. Uh, We didn't come with Strong IP from universities or anything like that, which are all the usual kind of like biotech founding stories. And uh, what happened is that we just had this like passion, both out of like technical interest, uh, desire to you know make people's lives better, but also family stories around cancer. And very early on, we met with our scientific co-founders Ansu uh, Satpathy from Stanford and uh, Danny Wells from the Parker Institute and from Stanford as well. And they really helped uh, shape the technical direction of the company and you know, really changed the company in, uh, in many ways. So one of the first things that we decided early on is that uh, we wanted to really double down on the immune side of the cancer immune game or fight. That was the part that was mostly unexplored. And this part came very heavily from, uh, from Anson and from Danny as well. And uh, the second big part is that we really decided to focus early on on uh, what's called these like single cell genomics methods, uh, which are the more like recent kinds of like sequencing um, or sample processing and sequencing methods that allow you to profile individual cells and generate sort of like really big data from human samples. So we started with Thainom and I having this like joint passion around the like machine learning and cancer biology. And uh, Anso and Danny joined us uh, soon after and really helped understand like we're like the real technical problems that we could solve
1: so imagine when you started the company there was a lot going on in terms of the field of immunology and cancer therapy with checkpoint inhibitors with car t how did you come upon the first question that you said the company would solve
2: yeah we did not understand why patients did not respond to therapies whether it's CAR-T or our checkpoint inhibitors. We thought that a big part of why we didn't understand why patients uh, weren't responding was because we did not have this uh, broad view of the immune system across many different indications and therapies. And that instead typically, you know, responds to, uh, you know, to Keytruda, one of the main checkpoint inhibitors, was studied like, you know, for one specific cancer at a time, or maybe with a few at a time. But there, was, there wasn't this kind of a top-of-the-tree view of immune response in cancer. And uh, this was, in many ways, the foundational thesis of the company, that by looking at many diseases at the same time, and many related pathways at the same time, and many related drugs at the same time, we would be able to understand them all much better than if we're just looking at them one at a time. We came in with a fairly like bold vision from the start, which was that we would not be successful if we're just trying to uh, improve response in one or two indications, but we need to go for as many of them in, at the same time as possible. So this was very present like early on in the company.
1: And I want to ask here, is that a technology bet or is that a business bet in terms of saying What we're going to do is rather than target a specific indication, we're going to do this approach where we're saying, let's study multiple diseases at the same time, just get some understanding of some shared structure to then be able to say, I'm going to do this because it's viable sort of business proposition here versus saying, you know, like technologically, this is what makes most sense because this is what is more likely to work than targeting a particular disease.
2: It was largely a technical and scientific bet uh, in the beginning. For the sake of in coming up with a better therapy for like one indication, we just really wanted data from as many other ones as possible. Uh, and we thought this would help. So the, it first came with from this like, uh, scientific bet that uh, we wanted to be looking at the immune system across a wide variety of related conditions and have this like real map of what's happening, uh, like sort of a one map of what's happening. And this has definitely business implications as well. So, you know, it means that we need to invest in collecting samples from all kinds of places and that we are thinking about drugs for many different kinds of disease and creates many good complexities. But in the beginning, it was a technical and scientific bet.
1: So Lewis, fast forward to today, it's been a few years since you started the company. What do we know because of immuni about cancer therapies today? that has changed from when you started the company as a result of having started the company?
2: So one of the uh, things that we have published um, on and uh, can talk about openly is around how much uh, we can understand about mechanisms of actions of uh, cancer immunotherapies just from the blood. Before we started, there was this general understanding that most of what cancer immunotherapies and checkpoint inhibitors in particular were doing were reinvigorating the immune cells already present in the tumor. And one of the things that we've been pioneering and had some of the first, maybe the first result on, was ensuring that actually a large part of the mechanism of action of these drugs happen in peripheral blood. So actually not even in adjacent tissue, but in the blood. So that's one uh, thing that we've been in, like, really doubling down internally uh, and helping. And I'd say the second thing is around the heterogeneity of cell therapies. So also fairly early on, we had this collaboration with the Baylor College of Medicine for actually for CAR NKTs. Although we've been finding similar things for CAR T's, uh, and we showed that there was a huge heterogeneity in the NKT cells uh, that were being infused in patients, and we published this in Nature Medicine uh, with our collaborators. And uh, since then, we've been working with them to actually leverage that understanding to create the next generation of CAR NKTs. Uh, that leverage some of this um, heterogeneity and where we try to have like the subpopulations that are more helpful to the patients.
0: I'd love to get a sense of sort of how you set goals for yourself as a company. So, So it almost sounds from our conversation so far that you've been doing a lot of really interesting research and are gathering a lot of important learnings along the way. But is there like a product goal at the end of this that you're kind of working towards or a specific service? Sort of what's the business end goal, and how are you sort of measuring yourself against that goal?
2: So our goal is to eventually have uh, drugs that are helping patients. And uh, we plan to do this in um, one of two ways. One is by having programs that are immune only. So essentially drugs that will go all the way from discovery to the clinic. And the second model is uh, by uh, partnering with pharma. Where we can share some of the early discoveries that we have and uh, scientific interests, and then collaborate with a pharma company on uh, specific like therapeutic areas or indications. And then business-wise, these are these like partnership deals or like milestone deals in which there are upfront payments, milestones, and eventually royalties from them. So I will have like these two sets of therapeutic
0: programs. Got it. So the goal ultimately is to take a drug end to end hopefully just by yourselves, and then eventually partnering with pharma. At the very beginning, how did you think about collecting the data that you would need to do this? Were you just leaning on scientific advisors to sort of help you get a foot in the door with certain institutions or what was sort of the first step that you took there?
2: This is something that we invested very heavily on early on in the company, which was like setting up academic collaborations that allowed us to have high quality samples A lot of it came from our scientific vision and collaborators that wanted to uh, be associated with us. And we formed these uh, collaborations both with hospitals and academic centers in which uh, we get samples from the patients, whether it's blood or tumor biopsies, matched with clinical metadata. And uh, we try to publish based on the results that we have. But we can also, for like many of those collaborations, use the results internally
0: for our discovery programs. And are there aspects? of the data that are sort of specific to the immune system that maybe other types of companies are overlooking that you are really insistent on being able to collect? We find that
2: there are two parts of this that are really important. The first is making sure that the um, clinical metadata that we get from the, the patients, from the collaborators is very high quality. So um, this is something that I think is relevant for like many companies, not like us. And the second part is making sure that the biological samples are also of uh, high quality. And to your question, we're particularly interested in understanding things longitudinally. So I think uh, one of the um, things that is like special about a lot of our collaborations is that we have typically many time points from the patients to really understand, you know, time progression of uh, how, the, how the immune response of these patients uh, happens.
0: I'd love to get a sense sort of what it means to build a picture of of a patient's immune system. Can you maybe give us a little bit of background on that? Yeah. So
2: taking a step back, we see cancer uh, as this uh, fight or game between cancer cells and immune cells, where cancer cells create all kinds of tricks to be able to replicate faster and to evade the immune system. Uh, in better ways and to uh, penetrate tissues in a more efficient ways. Whereas the immune system is trying to kill cancer cells. It's trying to signal to other immune cells that there are cancer cells around and it's trying to uh, see through the evasion mechanisms. So a lot of cancer biology research in the past had been focused on the biology of the tumor, meaning like what are the mutations in the tumor, what are the proteins that are around the tumor, and things like that. And that's, of course, highly important, That you can also target the tumor directly. But uh, what there hadn't been was a company that was focused exclusively on mapping the immune system and how it related to different kinds of tumors in all of these different types. And because the immune system is the main player fighting cancer in the body and that's why we decided to focus on really like mapping the immune system as thoroughly as, as possible from the beginning
0: had others tr- tried to do this before was this sort of a a unique thing that you guys had attempted or or were there other attempts to do this sort of profiling in the past
2: i think we are the only the first company that has really done this with a scope that uh, we have there had been companies in the past that focused on like specific parts of the immune system such as know, specific cell types or specific like receptors and trying to understand them across cancers. But I th- we are the first company that's really like looking at the immune system uh, in its entirety across many diseases.
1: I wanna ask a little bit about the science here. So you have two technologies uh, that you're working with, single-cell genomics and machine learning. I'd love to understand how each of these plays a role in terms of what you're building.
2: Yeah. So these are exactly the two pillars of, of our R and D and the single cell genomics are these, uh, relatively new methods, you know, more widely available in the last few years that allow you to profile individual cells. So in the past, when people talk about sequencing, they're typically talking about bulk sequencing, meaning that, uh, you take many cells, whether it's from blood or from wherever. And you put them through a process, and then at the end of the process, you might get, you know, the average DNA expression or the average RNA expression across all those cells. So that's like the usual form of sequencing. With single-cell genomics, you can still put tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of cells through the process. But at the end, you have the readout for each cell individually. And this really allows you to understand the heterogeneity of what's there. So... You know, if we make a comparison, this is essentially the comparison between interviewing 1 million people uh, and understanding their personality and what they look like and what they like to do uh, versus doing a census of a million people and getting the averages, right? And it really allows you to understand the subpopulations and, uh, you know, what's uh, hard for different subpopulations, what's uh, working for the other ones and so on. So, um for us, single cell genomics was the obvious thing to uh, focus on, especially given the skills of our scientific co-founders, because we believe from the beginning that a lot of the story happened in this, these like rarer cell populations that are essentially being visible if you're only looking through the these, like, bulk methods. And uh, this generates a ton of data. So from about a milliliter of blood, uh, we generate something like a terabyte of data from that. And when you have tons of data, and particularly when the data is structured, this is a a great fit for machine learning. It was like the obvious thing to be able to uh, not just think of each patient or each time point as a data point, but really each cell as a data point. So uh, our N in machine learning is not the number of patients, but it's the number of cells. Uh, We very early on invested heavily in data infrastructure to be able to do machine learning from the beginning.
1: And are these sequences of the tumor or these sequences of the blood that you target?
2: These are uh, mostly immune cells, uh, whether from the blood or immune cells following the tumor.
1: Got it. Okay. So when people think of machine learning, they typically think of supervised machine learning as the canonical paradigm. In single cell genomics, unsupervised learning Where you're thinking about clustering cells and seeing what families' cells form has been more of a widespread technology than, let's say, in other applications. How do you think about the application of either supervised learning or unsupervised learning, to the kinds of problems that you work on?
2: So, before you get into your question precisely, one of the things we try very hard in a company is to have tight collaborations between the computational teams and the uh, immunology or genomics teams, where it's really it's not like we have you know a machine learning department and then an immunology department. We just have like sub teams that are multidisciplinary, and they will have you know the people that really know the biology and the people that really know the machine learning, all in the same team, working against a specific you know scientific goal. And uh, what this allows us to do is to actually make more sense of unsupervised learning techniques more easily. So uh, we can have different like clusters of cells that are popping out. And uh, because we have the immunologists actually like, sitting next to the machine learning people, they can explore what those clusters are and they make sense of them biologically. They can see the genes and the proteins that are expressed there and start having some understanding from that. So the, the fact that we have these like very tight and deep collaborations between the groups actually really makes it a lot easier for us to explore uh, the data in uh, more uh, unbiased ways.
1: If you are able to share, I'd love to know what your sort of machine learning and output looks like.
2: Yeah, so we um, can give a couple of examples of two machine learning uh, products that we have. The first is a supervised learning one. Uh, so we have the largest database in the world of immune cells that are like highly curated. So we have annotations per cell of, uh, you know, what are the types of cells, uh, what are the subtypes and what are the states of the cells and all that. And the labels there were manually created by immunologists. And we have machine learning models uh, for essentially when new cells come in to classifying them into you know, one of 50 plus uh, cell types uh, fairly accurately. And we'll have some uh, publications of that. Another example of a machine learning product is around optimization of in vitro systems. So the way that we test drugs, our, the drugs that we're creating in the company is uh, in many different kinds of preclinical models. So this can be in the mouse, this can be in an organoid, or you know, this could be in an in vitro system. And to be able to create in vitro systems that are very similar to human biology, uh, we use machine learning to help improve them where the, in this case, uh, the product is giving recommendations of what changes in experimental protocols we should make to make the cells that we're creating in vitro more similar to the cells that we're actually finding in the tumor.
0: I'd love to go back for a moment to the multidisciplinary subteams that you were talking about. Was there a process to sort of get to that point? I guess, like, how did you realize that that was maybe the most effective way to structure the company? And... Were there sort of iterations in company structure that you went through before then? Yeah, one of the
2: things that was you know, challenging and exciting about the, starting this kind of company like we were starting early on is that there wasn't a playbook for um, the organizational structure that we should have. So we knew that we weren't a usual biotech company, which is typically more siloed and let's say perhaps also more structure. Uh, and we knew that we weren't the usual tech company either. And uh, we've gone through like a few iterations of this, but the model that we find uh, is working well now is where we have uh, something like the Spotify model, if you guys are familiar with it. No. It's an organizational structure that was uh, popularized by Spotify because they made this amazing uh, video explaining it. And it's very common in tech companies. So it's a good chunk of tech companies use something like that. Where you have multidisciplinary groups, which in tech is typically a mix of like software developers, machine learning, data science, data analysts, design, and led by a product manager. And these groups, they are highly independent. So they have a business goal and they have all the resources and people they need to meet those business goals. That's what we believed in as well with some changes along the lines of uh, allowing them to be a bit more like long-term focused. Um, because a lot of what we're trying to do, you know, we can expect results every uh, sprint. They have like long-term views and uh, we also have different like management models. So not all of them are led by product managers. Some are led by a mix of uh, you know, machine learning people and uh, immunologists. So we've been experimenting with what's the right uh, leadership for each of those groups.
0: So you mentioned that the Spotify model has sort of business goals that they have to hit. You have a longer term vision how do you measure progress or success for each of these teams?
2: Yeah, so we have two kinds of teams. So we have platform teams, which are about uh, two-thirds, I think, of our R&D, and we have therapeutic teams. The therapeutic teams, their business goals are around advancing drugs against specific diseases. So uh, we measure progress there by uh, quality of results in different model systems. Uh, we are we haven't started like, human trials yet, so results in mice, results in vitro, and the, for the platform teams, we set uh, technical goals for them around uh, scale, around reproducibility, around accuracy, and so on. And then those platform teams, they all serve the therapeutic teams. Yeah, and one of the things we have trying to strike a balance here is that we really believe in the power of our platform as the real long-term differentiator that we have. And I think that's something that uh, many companies say, but eventually this boils down to how many resources are you actually putting in the platform versus in the therapeutic teams. And for us, uh, we've you know, made a decision to uh, continue investing heavily in the platform, uh, which is what we hope will allow us to eventually be uh, one of the largest pharma
0: companies in the world, as opposed to focusing on
2: only on the, sort let's say, like short-term
0: therapeutic results. And you guys have raised about $300 million at this point. Can you maybe talk through a little bit how biotech fundraising is going to be a little bit different than maybe more traditional tech fundraising and, and how you think about like how frequently you need to raise? Because I feel like it's a different trajectory and also you just have a different timeline than a lot of normal tech companies may have.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fundraising atmosphere is definitely different in biotech than it is in tech it typically relies more heavily on uh, scientific results and scientific like leadership early on as opposed to some kind of like business traction so typically for a, a tech company to have raised 300 million dollars they probably would have shown lots of revenue and uh, lots of business traction whereas in biotech there's like many companies like us that are mostly relying on the technical and scientific results up until this stage the second point that I'll make there is that we've also been noticing an increasing interest in us and a company like us by technology investors that uh, maybe five or 10 years ago would not have been investing in companies like us. Oh, why do you think that is? I think it's because they're realizing that uh, they're actually technology companies that are developing drugs, unlike a lot of what would happen maybe five or 10 years ago, which there were like biotech companies that had some computational component, but really they weren't technology-first companies. So I think they're really realizing that a lot of the economics of technology will translate in biotech as well with uh, when a company is like really technology-focused.
0: For you, is it important to have investors that can sort of add value from a scientific standpoint? Or is it really just about getting investors who are supportive and have the funds available to help you grow? For us, it's
2: the more engaged the investors are, the better. I think that the main thing that we care about is that people believe in our vision and that they are willing to support us into figuring out what's the right way to get there.
1: I want to ask about the role you're seeing academia versus startups versus pharma play in this whole ecosystem. So what kind of work would you say is better suited to be done in academia in the space of immune therapies and the use of machine learning?
2: That's something that um, I think a lot about. And I'll give you my straight answer is that I I, I don't know. I think a lot of academics should work more with industry and that they can accelerate their own research by working more with industry and vice versa. I think there's a lot of companies like us that there are some kinds of projects that are maybe too risky in the sense that we wouldn't devote resources to do them, but that it could make sense to doing a collaboration with an academic group that just has different incentives. Eventually the incentive for academia is publications and the incentive for companies is, you know, eventually doing things that are valuable. So um, I think when there are things that are like extremely risky business-wise, they could still make sense for academics uh, to do. And uh, vice versa, there are things that uh, could make sense for companies to do and for academics doesn't. And the other part that I've been noticing is that a lot of academics want to work with us because we have all the disciplines needed to create impact in-house. Whereas if an academic wanted to do a highly multidisciplinary project involving, uh, let's say, a machine learning scientist, an immunologist, and somebody making antibodies, and somebody that is capable of dealing with like lots of data, it's very hard to set up these things academically. It just takes a long time and and it's not clear who is leading the collaboration and things like that. Whereas in a company, these things don't matter so much, and uh, it's just sometimes like easier to set up these like multidisciplinary projects uh, when you just have everyone in house already.
1: I saw that you have set up more than twenty-five academic partnerships to build this annotated multiomic immune cell atlas. I wanted to ask in terms of getting data from all of these different hospitals, what incentive structure did you find worked well in terms of being able to go to hospitals and say, hey, look, uh, you should share this data for reasons X, Y, Z.
2: The main lesson that we learned there is that we, we had to bring something to the table. In this case, what we were bringing to the table was our expertise on single cell genomics and machine learning that uh, is still very rare to have. So uh, when we met with our collaborators, especially people that are in immune oncology, they really want to be doing cutting edge single cell things and they want to be dealing with machine learning. But unless you are one of the few truly cutting edge academic labs, uh, you typically don't have an army of people in your own lab that can do that we kind of provided that. So in some sense, the deal was we help them with processing the samples, generating the highest quality data possible, and analyzing the data and helping them get a publication as quickly as possible that they are leading. And uh, in turn, uh, we can use the data for uh, our therapeutic priorities for many of the collaborations and not all. So that's essentially, I think, the, the incentive scheme there is that we accelerate publications and discovery. Uh, And for many of them, we can use it for therapeutic research in health.
1: I want to chat about the other side of this now, which is pharma. So I think pharma, I'd be curious if you agree that they have realized that there is a lot uh, of benefit to investing in machine learning, both as collaborative efforts uh, with startups, as well as creating large teams in-house that will have machine learning capabilities. And often they already have a um, trove of biological capabilities in-house. In terms of the future here, how do you see this interplay working out in terms of what the role of non-pharma companies as they're growing is going to be? versus the role of traditional pharma companies?
2: Yeah, I'll share what our thesis is, and I think time will tell whether we are right, which is that the multidisciplinary aspect of companies like us, in which we're really built to have collaborations between software and machine learning and immunology and genomics from the get-go as point number one, and point number two, meaning thinking of data as a first-class citizen in the company. I think those two parts are the real parts that I have a hard time seeing big pharma being able to uh, reinvent themselves quickly enough to catch up on. Mostly because these are things that are hard to revert once you don't start off doing them right. So in big pharma, even the ones that are the most cutting edge and in single cell or in machine learning, for example, like Genentech that has hired some of the best people in the world or many of the other ones. These companies, they grew over the last few decades in this siloed manner, right? Where you have a computational biology department, and you have an IT department, and you have an immunology department, and these groups are not like built for the depth of collaboration that we are. And I think it's very hard to change because all of management doesn't have the right incentive schemes, right? For making this happen. And the second part is around thinking about data as a first class citizen in the company. So I'll give you an anecdote, which is that whenever we were planning an experiment, our immunologists, their first instinct is to go talk to the software and machine learning people and think about the experiment with them, not just for like planning the experiment to make sure it's the best experiment, but also to think about the metadata that will be resulting from that experiment to make sure that the metadata is compatible and comparable with the other experiments that we've made so that we can do meta-analysis immediately. And this is something we've built in from our first employee in that this kind of like thinking of every piece of data that we generate, it's not a means to answer a biological question only. It's actually a long-term data asset that we should be able to analyze together with the rest of the data that we have. And in contrast, if someone wants to do fairly complex meta-analyses in a larger company that didn't start like us, you need to go through so many hurdles to understand where the data is and to make the metadata compatible and to figure out where it's saved and so on. This takes weeks or maybe at best like days just to get the data in the right format. So you can't be iterative around doing these things. Whereas when you start this from the right track of like having your data always structured, always organized. And so that you can do fairly complex analysis in half hour, as opposed to, you know, days or weeks. This, I think, enables for a kind of company that's uh, that's a bit different.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I I like the investment in the multidisciplinary teams and also in data as a first-class citizen. On that note, you know, these sound like fantastic long-term payout decisions that one can make early on. What are you most proud of in terms of a result that has come out of structuring your teams and your priorities in terms of data this way?
2: I think that the main part that I'm proud is that we are able to attract people that really value that in the sense that a lot of people want to join Immunai because they've gone through uh, different troubles in their past lives around not having the right multidisciplinary environment. So you know this can be in the form of a genomicist or an immunologist who wanted to do fairly complex analysis, but they didn't have the right partnership from computational biologists or machine learning people like on a day-to-day. Or this can come from the machine learning or computational biologists that uh, wanted to be able to do experiments much more quickly and to be able to be part of the thinking process all the time, instead of just you know, getting a dump of data uh, at the end of the experiment. So we the fact that we've created a place that I think is already like known to have that collaboration and that people want to join us exactly because of that, I think is actually the main uh, thing I'm proud of here.
0: And maybe on the flip side, what advice would you have for other people trying to start a biotech company? Maybe like mistakes that you've made that you learned from and that maybe you can warn others against as they kind of think about going into this space?
2: Yeah, we... um. Focus, of course, on science. Uh, that's the, the the given, but also on business. And I think we um, have like a full understanding of the business landscape and of what pharma companies want and what are the clinical needs early on, because it's easy to have the wrong impression of what's happening, unless you have really like the right advisors or the right people in house. And we went through a few iterations of trying to find them. Um, the right advisors to, to work with, for example. So I'd say like trying to get as quickly as possible to the point that you feel like you really understand the business and clinical landscape I think
0: can not be overstated. You think people tend to focus almost, not that they focus too much on the science, but that they sort of do so at the expense of where the company is going to go long-term potentially? Yeah, I would say that in the beginning, at least,
2: we could have been, I think, a bit more aware of uh, different parts of like the business and clinical landscape that could have like shaped your priorities a bit. So I think I uh, wish we had done this like a bit, uh, a bit earlier.
0: That's great advice. I like that a lot. It's especially hard because I think in maybe more non-biotech companies, you sort of have users early on to kind of gut check ideas or your product off of, but in biotech, you don't necessarily have that right away. And so that's great advice for, for biotech companies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I would love to get a sense from you of, you know, 10 years from now, where would you like to see Immuni be? What successes, what has it done? What has the company done that would make you really proud in 10 years' time?
2: In 10 years, we want Immuni to have uh, several drugs in the clinic. And um, most importantly, to be able to look at some diseases and say that there are patients that lived uh, much longer or that survived because of us. I think that's the main goal that we have here.
0: Lewis, thank you so much for being on the show and joining us. We really appreciate it. And this was great. Thank you for having me. This was fun.
1: And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Lewis Ballock for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your host, Pranavan and Adriel. And until next time, stay safe, and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast
0: is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee, Mark Robbins, Ashwath Radhatrandran, and Navami Jain. Music by Ethan Achi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.